in this episode with Nick Gill. So I've worked at all levels of rugby in New Zealand and and you sort of you see the differences in, in the levels if everyone knows that a prof, being a professional athlete has a, a short lifespan, you know, like some people might be fortunate to have a 15-year a career in sport, but but most people are probably more like five or six. And so uh, everyone has to be investing into that backup plan, what comes after. Um, not many get to be professional athletes and then carry on in professional sport and coaching or anything like that. There's sort of there's opportunities there, but they're few and far between. Um, and so everyone's, you know, across the levels, people are getting advice and help into life outside of rugby. Um, or life outside of sport, so it's you know a, a backup plan, or or you know the the future planning of what am I going to do when this finishes. Um, I think is you know it should be everyone's responsibility to, to be doing that, um, regardless of whether it's high performance sport or just general business. Um, uh, things change so fast, and things can happen really quickly. So. Um, having something to fall back on or something to move into, I think, is um, sensible and responsible. But that that management group really changed the All Black environment. The, you know, 2005 and 2006, um, the environment went from being probably a, an inexperienced, unprofessional environment and a bad culture to something that was pretty special. So I came back in 08 and all the hard yards had been done. You know, you can work really hard for money, um, and and not enjoy what you're doing. And you might have money now, but you've only got a day or two a week to actually enjoy yourself. And it, the ratio is all wrong. So, you know, I sort of I feel like every day you should enjoy, and you should be challenged. You should be able to use your brain. You should be able to learn. Um, hey, there's going to be periods of time where it's real hard and there's pressure, um, but that's also exciting and fun when you get through it. Um, so I think I, I think just for me it was very much a, um, it just proved that I wanted to do things I loved and wasn't prepared to, um, uh, I suppose, make home unhappy um, and be involved in something that I didn't actually really enjoy. So, um, yeah, that's probably my learnings. It's just, yeah. and I don't think I've changed since then. I don't think I was different before then. It's just... Yeah, I, I just I don't see I don't see the point in being miserable doing something if you can get out of it. You know, yeah. um, if you can make a decision and and make choices to to do things you love, then you got to do it. Famous phrase, I think it was Steve Hansen's phrase. Um, you know, the old no dickhead policy. You know, mm -hmm. you got to be a good person to be a good All Black, and 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 that's that's still true to this day. Like if if you don't have the work ethic, um, the the morality, the the ethics um, of being a good person. Um, you don't tend to stay around for very long. Um, you might make it on your rugby nous and your rugby ability, but you tend to not last. Um,
Okay, Nick, Gilly, uh, thank you for taking time out and coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Um, you are obviously the uh, are well known for being the All Blacks strength and conditioning coach. Um, in my research, I found out there's a whole lot more to you than that, so it'd be good to delve into that. But before we do, my first question relates to the title of this show, Life's Work. I'd like to ask you to summarise, if you can, um, what you would consider your life's work to be. Oh, okay. Um, well, well, hopefully I'm only halfway through. Um, but probably um, in one or two words, probably probably a teacher, coach, um, father, husband would sort of be not in that order, by the way. Um, <laughs> what what I think would be best describe, I suppose, what I've been doing and what I am doing, um, in a couple of words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to come back to that when you talk about that order, because um, yeah. again, in my research, uh, family is quite key for you, isn't it? I've, yep. I've noticed. So we'll talk about that. So that's good. Thank you for that. Um, so what I tend to do in these conversations is try and establish a little bit of context by talking about. You as a as a younger fellow, you know about your your childhood and your upbringing. Um, you know where you lived, what the family context was. So, could you tell us a little bit about that? So, um, born in West Auckland and um, spent first seventeen years out that way. Um, family of five, two sisters, one older, one younger, and um, yeah, I suppose I went to Massey High School um, and pretty tough school. Like um, memories of school for me were, um, I was little, I was skinny, um, you know, I wore glasses and um, got bullied a couple of times and parts of school I didn't like. Um, but as school went on, I sort of found a passion and something that I was good at, which was um, sports science. And so, um, and obviously I hit puberty and all that stuff and, and all of a sudden grew and stopped getting bullied because I was no longer small. And um, so that's sort of my, my sort of, real early memories um but I love sport I love being outside um still do um and yeah I sort of followed that passion um it helps when you I think when you love something it helps you become good at it um and so that's sort of something I always tell my daughters and people wanting career advice is just follow your passion because if you love what you do you'll 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 excel um and so that's what I think happened with me is um, love sport, loved exercise, love sports science. Um, went and went and studied at university and and loved learning. Um, and I think that's where my my passion for teaching is teaching and coaching has come from. Is I like to learn. So um, you know the other side of learning is to teach. Um, and so that's sort of what I've ended up doing. Um, I was at university for. First person to go to university from my whole family, from like all all sides of my family. Um, so I didn't think it was a big deal until now. I think it's a big deal now. Um, but both my daughters are at university, so now it's sort of um, following dad's footsteps a little bit. But um, yeah, I, th I think that whole uh, nine years studying, being a student, having lots and lots of different teachers and influences in that time um, probably shaped me a lot. Um, and then, yeah, I sort of went straight into teaching and straight into coaching. So, um, so where, where did you find the passion for learning? When did that sort of 
Oh, pro- I, I hated school. Um, <laughs> I loved school for friendships and playing sport. Right. Didn't like the classroom as such. Um, and I remember, I remember early days reports, you know, and parent teacher interviews, and there was there was um, two common phrases that my parents would come home from parent teacher interviews with that teachers would describe me: um, leadership potential, but easily led astray, and um, <laughs> and. And it was very true. Like I loved having fun. I didn't want to miss out on any fun. Um, so if there was someone clowning around in class, I wouldn't. I didn't want to miss out. So I'd sort of join the party. Um, but didn't like study. Didn't absorb stuff easily. Had to try hard and work hard to try and remember things or understand things. Um, and still to this day, it's the same. I'm. I'm not intelligent. I just work hard. Um, and and I think my passion for learning probably came about when I found something I really enjoyed. Um, I didn't like learning things that I didn't I, I, I struggled with. It was things that all of a sudden I get that I want to know more about that. I want to try and learn more about that, and then you become inquisitive. And you know, I'm been involved in research for a number of years, so it's sort of it's the same sort of um, it's the same sort of thing where you just have questions and you want to understand something a bit more. You want to learn a bit more about something. So, um, yeah, that sort of probably probably really came through 15, 16 when I started really enjoying sports science. Um, in a lot of high school, the back end of high school, you are doing experiments, you know, in, in, the, in the labs and science and biology and chemistry. And I love that stuff. I love sort of, you know, if we mix this with this, what happens? Um or if we if we put a plant in the dark versus in the light, what happens? How does how does photosynthesis work? Like I love that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, so science and sports science is probably where that that I don't know that learning stimulation came from. Yeah, the key, the key thing there that I picked up on was that once you found something that you loved, you wanted to learn more about it. Yeah, yeah. Which you know. I, I've read a lot about this kind of stuff over, over the years where, you know, the school system doesn't necessarily cater for that or hasn't historically. I think it's getting better over time. But And you're in, you know, you're in the education system, obviously, as an associate professor. <clears throat> Our standard kind of approach to schooling, doesn't, it's kind of boxes people or doesn't necessarily give them the, the opportunities. And, and I, I just think maybe sometimes if people had the opportunity to explore a bit more of a wider scope of things that could find the thing that they're passionate about and and then they're off learning about it like you've just described um you know we, we do we've done that with our kids in outside of school activities let them try everything and then they find one that's that that hits the mark i think it's really important isn't it otherwise you know the majority of people don't necessarily uh, love learning earlier in life oh no you bang on um and it actually goes through your whole life um you know like i first of all schooling yes you're you're boxed into things you must do and i think the foundations are important um and i know that like my daughters went through high school and it used to blow my mind that that a lot of their friends parents would choose the kids subjects Mm. as to what they're going to do in the next year and um we never did that with our girls it was a very much a what do you love what do you enjoy what do you want to do um so I think that early exploring lots of different things is really important. Um, same in sport outside of school, you've already touched on. Um, early specialisation is just not good, where you just put everything into one sport. All of a sudden you're 
you're 25, you've done one sport, you have no interest or love for anything else, that's been and gone and all of a sudden it's sort of like, oh, man, I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have tried that. Mm. Um, but even even when it comes to, um, you know, in our 30s and our 40s and our 50s, um, experimentation is really, really important. Um, with things like exercise, with things like food, with things like sleep, like our health changes daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. Um, and so we have to have the skills to be able to experiment and figure out, well, actually, I used to like eating like that, but I might try eating like this. I think it's just gold. It's stimulating. You learn. And all of a sudden, we're a dynamic org organism ourselves as, you know, as humans. And so what we love, what we like, how we respond to things changes. So you can, you can ingrain that from a very early age. So school's massively important for that for that figuring out what you love, what really ticks your boxes, you know? I think what you just touched on there as well is that really our lives should always be about learning. We should be open to learning all of, you know, right throughout. Because the other thing that I've read quite a bit about recently as well is how good that is for our mental health and oh, uh, brain health. Yeah. You know, that the minute we kind of stop learning, we, you know, our brains start to kind of shrink. Um, so if we're not stretching ourselves in new experiences, trying new things, then... Uh, there's a, there's a cost to that. Well, I think people get comfortable and they get they get set in ways, and um, I definitely feel like as as we age, we definitely a little bit risk like we don't like risk as much. We we get a little bit more. Oh, I don't want to I don't want to get in the car to go down to the beach because there's too much traffic, or we want to just be really comfortable. and And I think learning learning is so stimulating for for you know your top three or four inches um yeah and it shouldn't stop you know the day the day you stop learning should be the day you're underground pretty much yeah yeah and, and clearly from the time you spent at university you, you were in it sort of uh, both boots <laughs> absolutely <laughs> uh and, and have continued that so but before we go into that in a little bit more detail you talked about sports and loving sports what was your sport of passion if you like uh, uh, you know at school age what were you into uh, I loved I loved um, I loved soccer when I was younger. Football, um, loved rugby as I got a bit older, um, and then I sort of dabbled across rugby, cycling, triathlon, sort of depending on the season and things. Um, and and so when I was smaller um, and younger, I I loved my triathlon because I wasn't I didn't have the best hand eye coordination, like I wasn't skillful. Um, you know, I could play cricket, but I didn't love it. Um, you know, so I did play cricket. Um, but I really liked pushing myself physically. So that's where the cycling triathlon came about. Um, and so probably from the age of, I want to say, I want to say sort of 13. Um, 13 until how old? 13 until maybe 28. I was sort of triathlon and rugby. So probably 15 years of doing both. Um, got got to an okay level in rugby in Australia, um, and but continued just with my triathlon in the background the whole time, and um, and then stopped playing rugby and just yeah you know, I had a little bit of a breather as as the kids grew up and were younger. Um, time wasn't sort of time was scarce, um, and then once they got to a reasonable age, I got got back into triathlon and sort of still do now. I love it. Yeah, I do an Ironman every year, so it's um, yeah, it's a massive passion. So, so as a as a kid growing up, 
did you know what you wanted to do when you grow up? I still don't actually, by the way, but you know, did you have an idea of what, what it was that you were going to do in your future? Yeah, I, um, until about 16, I was going to be a policeman. Um, my dad was, um, he was a prison officer for a number of years. He had a couple of jobs and that was one of them. And um, somehow he got involved in the police and was officially called a civil defence officer. And so dad would go out in the, in the police with the police at night and just as a, as a civilian um, and he'd help them. And so he'd go out at 11 o'clock at night, do the night shift, come home at 7 a.m., um, have breakfast, have a coffee, be like so high on energy and excitement of, of the, the evening he'd had and how much he enjoyed it. Um, and then he'd go and do his day job. And, um, and so that just influenced me significantly. I just was like, man, that sounds amazing. What dad's experience, oh, that, sounds, that sounds like me. I want to do that. So I was going to be a policeman. Um, and then um, I remember at school, uh, I was, so this was, I still wanted to be a, a cop at this stage. At 15, you get to choose some subjects at school, um, for school certificate it was back then. And all my mates were doing woodwork and metalwork. Um, and you still had to do English and maths, I think, at that stage. Um, but anyway, I got pulled out of class one day by our um, career advisor to say, Nick, you know, why are you doing subjects that aren't going to take you to university? And I said, well, I don't need to go to university. I'm going to be a policeman. And they said, well, are you sure? And I said, well, I think so, yep. And they said, um, they said to me, sure, this lady said to me, um, well, let's just let's just explore what you like and don't. It was an amazing process. I remember it, it changed my life, really. Um, she said, why don't we, why don't you do one of those subjects that is not university um, leading to university? And so do that for a bit of fun, but you need to take some sciences because you're very good at science. And I was like, oh, am I? Said, yeah, well, your scores say you're really good at science. So, so, I think you should pursue sciences still. They're not going to hold you back from being a policeman, but they'll give you options if you don't become a policeman. I said, okay. So then I did that and then um, enjoyed enjoyed some of the stuff I did and did, actually didn't enjoy um, the metalwork. I actually didn't enjoy it. All my mates were doing it, but I was no, I wasn't very good at it. Um, so I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> but I was with my mates, so that was important. So the next year I ditched it and went all sciences and um, – so that was at 16, and as soon as I did that, I was like, actually, I don't want to be a policeman anymore. Um, you know, like I even did typing at school. So I did typing for three years at school, the only boy in my class, because all the all the policemen friends of dad said, there's one thing you can do at school to help you be a policeman, and that's learn how to type up type so your reports are done really fast. So I was like, okay, well, I'll type so I can get my reports done and get out of there. And, um, and so... Stopped typing, went into all my sciences, and yeah, that's when I realised actually sports science is where I want to head and I want to go to the Olympics and work with athletes at the Olympics. Because um, I didn't think at that stage, well, I knew at that stage I probably wasn't going to get there myself as an athlete, but um, I still had a, a little bit of a crack. But yeah, that's probably the, mm. the turning point was probably 16. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that someone else actually created that turning point for mm-hmm. you? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about where the path that you were on and where you would be today versus where you are. It was an important conversation to have, wasn't it? It was massive, and that's why I remember it vividly. I, I mean, I can't remember um, her face, which is which is sad because it would be nice to thank her. But um, 
I just remember being pulled out of class and none of my other mates got pulled out of class. So I wasn't quite sure how they how they picked me to have the conversation with, but it was obviously hugely a big influence on where I headed and where I got to today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you went to university? Yep. Um, in Dunedin. Yeah. So talk to us about that. What, what was what was that life like there? Wow. Um, so I left home at 17. Um, yeah. Mum and dad moved to Waiheke Island my last two years of high school. So I commuted to high school from Waiheke Island. Um, went to Dunedin at 17 and, um, yeah, basically knew no one. Got lost my first day. I was a kid, you know, and um, grew up real fast. Loved it. Um Met some really good guys from around the country in our first year that are still mates. We catch up every year for a, for a big running mission. And, um, yeah, loved it so much. Obviously, talk about it with a lot of excitement and good memories. So both my daughters have gone down there, um, sort of doing totally different subjects, but um, just wanted to almost experience what Dad did, I think. Um, you know, spread the wings a little bit and stand on your own two feet and meet people that are all in the same situation where no one knows anyone. Um so yeah, studied down there and and was a I was wasn't a very good student for the first couple of years because I probably partied a bit much and had too much fun and as you do um, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change a thing um, and then things started getting a little bit well what am I actually going to do how's this going to help me so I got a bit more serious and then ended up doing um, an honours uh, research sort of year um, in Dunedin and that's probably where things sort of um, yeah, turned significantly for towards the not academia, but but towards the the high performance sport. Yeah, yeah. So I did. So I was down there for four years. And then after that, you did a PhD. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. My supervisor at the time, um, I just said to him, like, I don't feel like I know enough to go and get a job at the time. Like that was the mid nineties. There was no work in high performance sport really, like not paid work, or if there was, there weren't many opportunities. Um. You know, there was no professional sports teams in New Zealand um, and I knew nothing about America. I didn't really know much about Australia other than the AIS over there, the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, so I've, I sort of said to my supervisor, I don't really know enough to leave the university and work. I didn't feel like I had the skills or, or, or the knowledge to go and actually have someone pay me for that. Um, so he suggested I do a PhD. Um, so I applied for scholarships around the world, well, not around the world, Canada, Australia and Dunedin, and um, you was lucky enough to get awarded a couple and then I had to choose one. So, um, yeah, went and did a four-year PhD in Australia. Yeah. 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 It's it, What you just said then, aren't you, sort of made me stop. We forget, don't we, just how short a time, relatively speaking, that sports have been professionalised. Oh, yeah. Like you say, in the 90s. There wouldn't have been that many jobs, would there? Oh, there's none. Well, like rugby went professional in '96, so yeah. Yeah. there was no jobs in rugby. And if they were, you know, it might have been an hour or two, and it probably wasn't paid. You know, like it was probably a you probably got travel or you probably got some uniform or. Mm. Um, so yeah, there was there was very little. So, um, so were you thinking at that time that that might lead to academic roles, as as a teacher, or are we? What were you thinking at that? No, point? no, no. I was just thinking I, I don't know enough to get a job in anything. I'm enjoying learning. I want to learn more because I want to be, I don't know, I want to learn more and have more skills and expertise and knowledge than everyone else I studied with. There was three or 400 people in my in my degree. 
So there's three or four hundred, let's say there's 200 coming out with that degree, but there's no jobs. So one, one there's no jobs, but there's also 200 people with the same qualification as you. So if, even if there were some jobs, there's a lot of, lot of, lot of competition for them, those jobs. So, you know, you had to stand above the crowd a little bit. Um, so no, I do, that's why I stayed at university is because I needed to know more so I could actually justify putting my hand up for a role or sort of create a role for myself. Um, but at that stage, I had no desire to work in rugby at all. Um, I was just thinking Australian Institute of Sport because um, they were getting ready for the 2000 Olympics, which was in Sydney. So the funding for sports science in Australia in the late 90s was massive. Um, so there were roles. There was roles that I thought, hey, I could move into that if I had the qualification and the experience. Yeah. 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 But a couple of things there. One is you know the going on for the additional study because you – said that you weren't ready to, or you didn't feel like you could go out and get a job, that you maybe not enough to offer. I mean, that's self-reflection. It's, it's pretty pretty good at that age. And, and then strategic thinking about actually what the future might look like and how can I get ahead of the rest of the, mm. rest of the pack. Is yeah. that how you kind of operate? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, it's actually, that's what, yeah, I'm always thinking about what's next or, or where things are going and, and I suppose... I don't want to say opportunity, but um, you know, you are you are a master of your own destiny. Really, you are control. You are in control of a lot yourself. Um, and so, I felt at that stage, I was, um, I had a, it was probably a crossroads of, you know, am I happy being average, and just finishing my degree and going out and getting a job in a field that I didn't want to really be in, um, or did I want to take control a little bit and actually pursue what I loved? Not take a risk, but but put it all into something that I thought might work out, um, and I didn't see any negative, anything negative out of the choices I made because if I didn't get into sport, I'd, I'd probably become an academic, um, and there's hundreds of universities around the world, so I would have thought, well, maybe I'd get a job somewhere. Mm. Um, it might not be in New Zealand or in Australia, but maybe somewhere I'd get a job. So mm. I found it was sort of not hedging my bets, but investing some time into learning a bit more and, and seeing where it took me. Yeah. Smart move, really. And, and for you, it's paid off in both, isn't it, really? Sport and uh, academia. Uh, yeah, and by fluke. It was a, yeah by absolute luck, I think, but um, the right place, the right time, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely paid off. Yeah, I love what I do. Yeah. But I think also having that kind of backup plan. You know, th- that's more of a feature these days in professional sports, isn't it, that um, and, and I suppose that's what professionalism has done, isn't it, with, with sports and, and athletes. It's given them a chance to focus completely on sport, but then after that sports, after they've kind of run their time in that sport, what next? And, you know, if you think back to when we weren't quite so professional, people were doing sport as well as a job, whereas now it's everything's into the sport and, and what next? So is, is, that a, is that a factor that's, you know, Big in, in the sports that you're operating in um, for, for athletes thinking about training themselves and building the, the skills, knowledge, not just the strength and conditioning, but the mental strength and conditioning and, and the whole package about what's what comes after the sport? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, like I've noticed, so I've worked at all levels of rugby in New Zealand and and you sort of, you see the differences in, in the levels if everyone knows that a prof, being a professional athlete has a, a short lifespan, you know, like some people might be fortunate to have a 15-year a career in sport, but 
but most people are probably more like five or six. And so uh, everyone has to be investing into that backup plan, what comes after. Um, not many get to be professional athletes and then carry on in professional sport and coaching or anything like that. There's sort of there's opportunities there, but they're few and far between. Um, and so everyone's, you know, across the levels, people are getting advice and help into life outside of rugby um, or life outside of sport. So it's, you know, a, a backup plan or, or you know, the, the future planning of what am I going to do when this finishes, um, I think is, you know, it should be everyone's responsibility to, to be doing that. Um, regardless of whether it's high performance sport or just general business, um, uh, things change so fast and things can happen really quickly. So um, having something to fall back on or something to move into, I think, is um, sensible and responsible. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So you are doing your PhD. What 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 was after that? Where you were in Australia doing that? Yeah, I did my PhD in Australia, and um, the idea for of my PhD was to work with a guru in my field which was a little bit undecided because I was into my strength and power training and I was into my triathlon so I was sort of I was trying to blur the lines a little bit and 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 do some research in that area um so I went to a strength and power guru in Australia he was the he was the most prolific researcher and scientist in in the world at the time um Went over there to work with him, and that didn't pan out. He um, he got he got sort of um, sacked from the university, so I ended up having to go a completely different track, um, which was fine because I still got to learn lots, um, still published, um, still got to, uh, I suppose, apply some knowledge and skills that I'd learned along the way to helping athletes. So that's probably the thing I got out of it the most was it gave me time to grow up learn a bit more and then start coaching um, without having to rely on it as, as a job. Um, when you're doing a PhD, you're sort of, you can looked after pretty well financially because it's tax-free money. Um, you know, you don't have office hours. You, it's it's actually a really cool experience to to be an independent learner where no one's checking in on you. You're driving your own learning and, and learning about research and how to critique uh, research and I suppose, form your own knowledge and opinions from what other people have done. So awesome process, um, awesome experience. And, yeah, I did that for four years. And then just before I was finishing, I had an itch to get home to a job. And like I like you've, you've heard, I've always got the next thing planned. So I hadn't even finished my PhD, applied for a job, got the job. So then I had a job and I hadn't finished a PhD. So I had to finish the PhD while I was in my first job. Uh, my first job was teaching at Wintech in Hamilton, um, teaching exercise physiology and, and programming and exercise prescription and things. So I'm teaching my passions, teaching what I loved. Um, and because I love that, I put my heart and soul into teaching. And so it took me another couple of years to actually finish the PhD. I just had to, like, edit it. You know, I had it all done. I just had to edit my thesis and it took me two years to get it across the line. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it was a bit of a juggling act, and and I've had a number of students since then doing their PhDs with me that I've said to them, "Don't get a job until you finish," okay? Because that's what I did, and it wasn't great. And most of them do the same thing. Most of them get a job before they finish, and then it drags on. Um, 
so I can't really say I told you so because I didn't listen to that same <laughs> advice. So, yeah. So um, I, I relate to that actually. I, I did the same in my masters. Uh, got a decent job and thought I'll finish it while I take this job. And yeah, two years later, uh, crossed the line. Well, that's what happens, isn't it? Because we, we're doing that. We're doing the. The, the, the postgraduate education to get us into a job that we want to do. Once we get the job, it's like, oh, I've, I've got the job, awesome. And so the, yeah. the postgrad takes a back seat. So, yeah, no, it's pretty common, eh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're back in New Zealand, in Hamilton. Um, and how, how long were you at Wintech for? Oh, I was there. I think I was there for seven or eight years. Right. Um, and loved Wintech. I had an amazing manager, Gordon Patterson, who actually lives um, in Tauranga. He's written a couple of cool books, um, but he he was my manager, one of my managers, and he was just such a massive influence and supporter of me. Um, yeah, I always reflect on why he was so awesome to work for, um, because that's that's yeah, it was it's hard to put a finger on it. But he, I, I worked there, and um, yeah, loved it. Right. Loved but have you put your finger on it though? What what else? Because that's I think that's quite key. You know, oh, he just I think cared. a lot he of us cared. remember the, 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 the crappy managers or leaders we've worked for and, and the, the good ones are few and far between. So it's Yeah, no, he just cared. He just cared, you know, like um and that that's all it was. And you I felt myself wanting to work harder just so I got more acknowledgement just from him. Mm. You know, as in he'd I'd be in I'd be in the office early, I'd be first in the office, I'd be in an office at seven thirty, I'd be working away and then I'd hear the door open and he'd see my light on, so he'd knock on my office and, and he'd have a chat and 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 then he'd an hour later I'd get an email, you know, how awesome, how much he appreciates how hard I'm working and the work I'm doing and um, you know, and if I ever need any it was just he was just there, always in the background supporting everything I was doing. Because I was trying to challenge the paradigm of I don't want to just be a teacher. I wanted to teach, I wanted to research, I wanted to work with sports. I wanted to challenge the the, the the status quo, I suppose. I don't want to just be comfortable rolling in, doing my lecture, um, marking some assignments and leaving. I sort of was there early. I was there late. Um, I want to do more than that. And he let me. He didn't try and hold me back. Um, he actually tried to give me a nice gentle push and any support I needed. So I think, I think um, you know, he was challenging and he was supportive. And I think that's probably the balance um, and it, it wasn't often about um, the institution but more about um, me as a person rather than how it impacted on the institution. So, yeah, yeah, he, he, he was an amazing manager and leader. Mm. You, you talked there about you wanting to work harder and do more, you know, relating back to what you were saying earlier though, I mean obviously he's appreciating, appreciating you were, there's probably a, a blend there of you wanting to do more for him because he cared about you and was supportive of you, but you were that character anyway, weren't you? That yeah, wanted oh, yeah. to do more and get yeah. ahead and absolutely. what's next? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what's next, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I sort of, I, I was only, I was probably only, I was probably only fitting the norm for two or three months, as in I was only a teacher for two or three months and then, um, I was trying to get work with with athletes um, through the it was called the New Zealand Academy of Sport at that stage. Um, so I started getting a little bit of that work, and and next minute I was looking after three or four sports and lots of athletes and having to having to ask to do less teaching because I wanted to do more coaching. Um, 
but of course someone needed to do the teaching so they couldn't sort of do that and then you had um, other staff going well how come Gilly can do all that as well as all that and Gordon my manager would just say well he just works really hard you know he deserves it um and so that was sort of um that was the early days and then yeah um how did rugby happen um I was in the staff room and um we had Debbie Strange was um one of the teachers in the coaching stream and awesome coach awesome lady um and her husband Chris Strange was currently working with the Waikato rugby team and the Chiefs rugby team that were just started um and we're having we're having lunch in the lunchroom, and she she just started asking me about what I was doing, and oh, you know, you you should see if you you, you want to sort of do some you know help with with Chris and the rugby team. I said, oh, that'd be great. So, like the next week, I was in with the Waikato rugby team helping Chris, and I just turn up, and he just give me programs, and I just help coach the athletes. So I just volunteered to help, just get some experience, and um, I think two years after that, I was in charge of the Chiefs. Yeah. So I volunteered to help with Chris. Um, Chris sort of gradually finished, and then I took over. Mm. Um, and it was just a, a coffee, a coffee in the lunchroom with Debbie, his wife, and um, and Chris taught me bucket loads, and I learned heaps from Chris and the athletes, and loved it. And um, yeah, so it sort of went from me being an academic teaching and helping some sports and, and sports science and strength and conditioning, and then sort of rugby became sort of. I started doing a bit of rugby. That was about 2000, 2001 maybe. Um, and then gradually rugby just picked up and, and teaching dropped off. Yeah. <coughs> so that's that preparation meets opportunity, right? Uh, and being willing to kind of step into it and take a bit of a, a punt, a bit of a risk. Um, well, it just fits into what we talked about earlier about just wanting to learn. I just wanted to yeah. learn. I just want to get yeah. some experience and learn and, I had no expectations at all, which is I think is different nowadays with young young people. Young people think if they get some experience or volunteer for something, they uh, owed something. Um, yeah. I would never, I never felt that at all. I was just purely, this is for me. I'm doing this for me. I want to help any way I can because I want to learn. And I never thought about if I do this really well, I might get some work with you. I never thought that at that time. Yeah, which is interesting. We've had a few conversations on, on this podcast about, you know, just wanting to do or wanting to give, but then always receiving back. And, and I'm, I'm, I've been concerned about talking about that in some respects because I think then people do for the wrong reasons. Oh, totally. It's actually, it's not about doing and then getting back. It's about doing with the right intentions and for the right reasons. And then you get back in different ways, not necessarily in the ways that you want to. That's you right. get back in, in different ways, isn't it? I agree. I totally agree. Like I you know, I I I don't think I've ever um put myself in a situation like that where I expected something out of it. Um and so when you go into a situation like that where you're just okay, I just want to learn here. That's all I want out of it. I just want I just want to learn. I want to open my eyes a little bit and see how things are done. And if by by having that opportunity to do that, I'm really grateful. Um, if something comes out of it, fantastic. But um, yeah, at that time, I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to get some experience and, and see what was out there and and learn because it might help me in my other things I had on my plate. Um, and and so I did. I got I got surprised big time. Yeah, because it opened up massive doors. Yeah. So when you were at the Chiefs, then were you still teaching? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. every year at the Chiefs and with Waikato Rugby, I sort of. 
because the, the sport had only been professional for about five years when I started. And so I was part of that initial transition of amateur rugby through to now. Um, and and so every year I got given more to do. And so I think maybe my first year it might have been a point two, you know, rugby role. And so I just juggled that within my, my teaching. So I was doing a 1.2. Um, and then, you know, I went to a point three. So then I have to go to my manager and say, okay, I've got a bit of rugby work on now. I need to pull back a bit with the Polytech. And, and every year we had the same conversation and rugby just went up and up and up. And I think 2004, I did my first gig with the All Blacks. Um, so I was doing All Blacks, Chiefs, Waikato and teaching and research. So I was, 2004 was nuts. Um, and so that was really the start of me having to go, well, actually... I need to give some stuff up here and I need to do more of one of them. Mm. And so the Chiefs, um, yeah, the Chiefs made me full-time. Mm. And so the teaching and politic become part-time. Mm. Um, so that was 2004. So how was that? I mean, you know, for you, that's, you know, passionate about sports and sports science and all of that study and then here you are, you know, in a professional sport. Was How did you feel at that moment? Oh, I loved it. Loved it. it was awesome, and I had no. It wasn't ever on the. It wasn't part of the plan, you know. I'm, mm. I'm quite a planned person, but it was never part of the plan. It was, um, it was just things just happened really fast, and um, and Ian Foster was the Waikato coach, and he then took me through to the Chiefs. So I was with I was with Fozzie until two thousand and eight, and um, you know, had had our two girls, and yeah, we were basically. I never let go of my teaching and my research um, because that was my learning and that was, I loved it. I loved my teaching and I loved um, helping research students do what I did and supporting their passion and their, their drive to, to learn and, and sort of become sports scientists in their own right, I suppose. Um, so I've, I kept that in my back pocket the whole way through, loved it. Um, and yeah, it wasn't until what happened... Um, I got the All Black job in 08, um, and that was full-time. So I left Wintech, um, but I wanted to keep doing research. So AUT University employed me as a as a research fellow. Um, so I was basically um, full-time All Blacks and a research fellow at the University of Technology up in Auckland. Um, so I kept, I kept that research sort of stream going. And um, yeah, have, have been involved in lots of students' PhDs and and still do to this day. So um, yeah, that's sort of where the where the balance changed probably two thousand and eight. So talk to me about the the All Blacks gig. So because you were there with the All Blacks, I think earlier in the piece, and then no four, yeah, and then are they not? You chose not to. Yeah, that? I left. Yeah, yeah. I Can did. you talk to us about about how? Because I think you know, there's there's a lot of people who listen to this who are All Blacks fans, right? And they'll want to know a bit more details. You know, how did that All Blacks gig come about, and what was that like for you? Um, yeah, cool. Um, 2004, the Chiefs. Um, it was our first year with the Chiefs, and we made the semi-finals. I think um, we had a, we had a pretty good year. It was our first year as a management team, and um, and we did pretty well. And anyway, the All Black staff, the new All Black regime, had it started, which was Graham Henry, Steve Hanson, Wayne Smith, um, 
And so at the end of Super Rugby, um, that management team advertised for a part-time strength and conditioning coach, um, an assistant um, for the All Black season. So um, I applied, and a lot of people applied, and I got an interview. And and I remember the interview, Graham Henry just sort of saying, you know, how did how how have you made the Chiefs look like the the physically peaking every Saturday because we we played really well every Saturday and a lot of the other Kiwi teams were falling away um, over the season and and so he must have thought from his, his observations as a as an experienced coach that physically we looked in good place um, and 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 so him and the head S&C coach gave me the role as assistant um, so I worked with them at the you know, for their very first test together so I was with them and so I was with them for the uh, I think it was the, the Stein Lager series at that stage, which was South Africa and Australia, um, and the inbounds, which I think was England that year. Um, so I think it did eight or nine tests. But they were just starting, and the structures, the culture, everything was really different, um, and way different to what I thought it would be. It was um, it was a lot of boozing um, of the players. Um, you know, the I was trying to. Myself and the SNC coach at the time, Graham Lowe, were working our butt off. Like we'd, we'd be up until two or three o'clock every morning in the morning, trying to get everything to a place where we felt it was world leading and world class, and we were working our butt off. And you know, we'd win the games, so we were winning. Um, but a lot of the high performance structures and requirements to be the best in the world. Um, weren't really being lived. So the culture wasn't great. Um, and and to make things harder, I was getting paid not a lot of money. Um, and we had a young baby at home and my wife was pregnant with a, our second baby. And so um, anyway, had these had this time away doing my dream job, working for the All Blacks. Wow, you know, I was 20, how old was I? I was only, I think I was, 30, 28, 29. So I was the same age as some of the players. Mm. Um, and I remember coming home to Hamilton and after the the Steinlager series and and my wife's got our little girl and we're on the floor in the bedroom for some reason just talking, maybe just playing with Olivia. I can't remember exactly what we were doing. And she said, so, so how was it? And I said, well, actually, I, I didn't enjoy it. It was, like, it was hard work and I just didn't – it wasn't what I expected it to be. And she just started bawling. And I said, what are you crying for? Like, what's wrong? And she just she just broke down. She said, look, I've just been put on a brave face. This has been so hard, but I've been put on a brave face because I know it's your dream job. And for you to say it's not what you wanted, it's been so hard. And I said, I'll, oh, I'll give up. I'll just get out of it. I'll just, I'll just won't do it. You girls are more important. She said, no, you're not doing that. You're not doing that. And anyway... Um, I spoke to Fozzie, actually, Fozzie, the, the Chiefs coach, and I told him the story, and he said, you leave the All Blacks and we'll make you full-time with the Chiefs. So it was sort of not an ultimatum, but it was an offer to say, we want you, and life won't be as hard, we'll look after you, mm. but you just you just and give up on the All Blacks. So I did. Yeah. Um, my dad said I was an idiot. He said, <laughs> well, don't leave, you no know one leaves the All Blacks, don't leave the All Blacks, you'll never get back. And I said, yeah, well, I'll be all right, I'll, I'll get back. He said, nah, and then I, I remember going away for Christmas and we had some family friends and, and one of the guys said, 
what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He said, don't leave the organ. I said, it's too late, already done. He said, no, idiot, you know, and that was 2004. Um, and I, I sort of reflect on it now going, man, I, I sort of jumped shit. I sort of, it was, I, I didn't want to be part of the change because I, I didn't know there was going to be change, but but that, that management group really changed the all-black environment. The, you know, 2005 and 2006, um, the environment went from being probably a, an inexperienced, unprofessional environment and a bad culture to something that was pretty special. So I came back in 08 and all the hard yards had been done. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organization, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology, or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. Yeah, a big call though, eh, to take it. Like you pointed out, as a, as a young fellow with a young family, um, but it speaks to what you were saying before about you know, enjoying and being passionate about what you do. Yeah. That's quite key, isn't it? Because if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're, you're at work too long and there's too much cost associated with with putting up with that or tolerating that. Oh yeah, yeah. Like um like I didn't go to university for nine years to not be able to apply any of my knowledge or skills. And so yeah, I felt restricted, constrained, frustrated. Um yeah, just it just there wasn't a lot of fun about it. Um it was just super hard work with not a lot of traction and not a lot of progress. So um, I think if I had a stayed, stayed involved, um, it would have changed pretty quickly. Um, but the fact that we were a young family, like that, that was the biggest challenge. Was actually a young my my wife. We were only we were only how old were we? We were, would have been twenty twenty eight, twenty nine. Four year old, one year old. It's sort of like man, um, it's too hard. And it might have been different if we were getting paid well, because you might have been able to get some support at home. Um, but my wife's Australian, and so she had no family in New Zealand either. And so it was just a, um, yeah, don't regret it one bit um, because it was the right thing for the family and the Chiefs were amazing. Like the Chiefs um, the Chiefs made me full-time and, and all of a sudden I'm now not travelling away as much. I'm home all the time. I'm rugby 12 months a year, um, getting paid okay and the best thing for the family. So it was win-win. What did you learn about yourself, uh, you know, through that episode? If, you know, because you're a learner, self-reflector. What were you learning about your decision making about you as a as a person? Oh, I think um, I think well, I think that's probably we've touched on it around 
actually doing what you love and enjoying it. Like, um, I think I think you can work really hard for money. You know, you can work really hard for money, um, and and not enjoy what you're doing. And you might have money now, but you've only got a day or two a week to actually enjoy yourself, and it, the ratio is all wrong. So, you know, I sort of I feel like every day you should enjoy and you should be challenged, you should be able to use your brain, you should be able to learn, um, hey, there's going to be periods of time where it's real hard and there's pressure, um, but that's also exciting and fun when you get through it. Um, so I think I, I think just for me it was very much a, um, it just proved that I wanted to do things I loved and wasn't prepared to, um, uh, I suppose, make home unhappy um, and be involved in something that I didn't actually really enjoy. So, um, yeah, that's probably my learnings. It's just yeah. – and I don't think I've changed since then. I don't think I was different before then. It's just – yeah, I, I just – I don't see – I don't see the point in being miserable doing something if you can get out of it, you know. Yeah. Um, if you can make a decision and and make choices to, to do things you love, then you've got to do it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So clearly it was the right decision, which was good. Worked out extremely well. Um, and like you said, you, you were back there in, in 08. Forgive my ignorance. Same management team that had made the changes, changed the culture of it. What was it like going back? What, what, um, was, what was the difference that you were seeing? Oh, the difference was they'd lost the World Cup. So they, they were under a lot of pressure when I started. Um, so the guy that was in charge, um, he left after the World Cup. And so... I applied for the job and because I'd already been there and I'd worked with that management team for nine weeks, nine tests, um, I think that helped me get re-get the job, that little bit of experience. Um, and, and it was very much an environment that had been simplified significantly um, and, and culture had become front and foremost. Um, the environment had become... You know, something that had standards, had values, was all about people, good, being good people, um, doing what's required to, as an athlete, as a professional athlete, like no shortcuts and, you know, working hard and, um, and, and recovering well and eating well and everything had changed significantly. Um, and part of that was the natural growth in the sport. You know, the, the clubs had become more professional the staff and the clubs had become more professional. So it was sort of a, a culmination of that management team in the All Blacks as well as the, the Super Rugby teams becoming better as well. Mm. So, yeah, things have changed a lot. Um, alcohol were nowhere near as big a, big a deal um, as it was in 04. Um, a lot of the, the older players in 04 had gone. So you had, you had some younger um, leaders um, steering the ship. And that'd been that'd been sort of, I suppose, part of the change. And so, yeah, it was it was very different. Yeah, very different. Tough environment. It's still it still is a tough environment. Um, you know, because the expectations are so high, and there's pressure to win every game. So, yeah. um, that was there in 04 and it was still there in 08 and it's still there now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so what is you've, you've talked about the culture, um. You know, I, I look at the All Blacks and I see it as an organisation. It's easy to look at the 15 blokes on the pitch at game time and that's the All Blacks, but it's much bigger than that, right? 
people talk about the, the team behind the team, but that's kind of almost indicating there's two teams. For me, it's one big team. Yep. Is that how it feels when you're in it? Yep. Yeah, definitely. But it's a big machine. You know, there's um, you know, there's obviously New Zealand rugby, which is the organisation, and within New Zealand rugby, there's a number of teams. Um, the All Black team, you know, it's always been thrown around that it's it, there's fifty of us. Okay, so there's the players, the playing group of thirty odd, and then there's a staff of fifteen or so. Um, and and so I remember in '08 when I went back, um, was it '08. Um, I'm trying to remember, um, it wasn't '08. I remember um, Richie McCaw, Tana Umanga, you know those captains of those eras. Um, it was always about fifty. We are fifty. So the same rules and standards and values that the players would buy into and would 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 live um, was expected of management. And so, you know, the the team is fifty or fifty two, whatever it is each year. Um, and so, you know, we all are professionals and we all are expected to perform twenty four seven. So yeah, it's a big group and it's a it's a big team. Yeah. I'm interested, I'm, I might jump all over the place here, but just as, as things come to mind, but so you've been involved in that organisation for a long time, 16 years, <laughs> yeah. is that right, about 16? Yeah. yeah. Um, you would be one of the few people that have been a, the constant in that organisation. Is that Would that be fair to say? Yeah, there's, um, at the moment, so this year, yeah, there's, um, yeah, there's, about, there's about five or six of us. Yeah, a few of them have been there since 2004. Yeah. So I, I worked with a number of them in 04 and then I left and came back in 08 and they're still there mm. with me now mm. or I'm with them now. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a few of us that have been around for a long, long time, yeah. Mm. And so and you've seen management teams come and go and obviously um, during a season you can see players in and out. How, how does that culture change or does it not change? Do, do you recruit into the culture and they become part of it, or does the, does the culture change? Yeah, good question. Um, the culture's always changing um, because the people in the team are different all the time. Um, you know, leaders leaders are moving on every year. We're losing you know some experienced players that have been there for a long time, and every year it's the same. We probably, I'd be guessing, but we probably have a every year. There's probably a twenty five percent change in, in player and in players involved. Um, through injury or retirement, in uh, the management team, um, you know, there's, there's every three or four years there's reasonable change. So coaches, doctors, um, it's probably where the most changes have been. Um, and so, whilst there's there's certain elements of the team and of, of the environment that remain and have been part of the fabric of the team for a long, long time. Um, People need to come into that environment, be able to fit. I suppose, um, you know, there's a, cons- a famous phrase. I think it was Steve Hansen's phrase. Um, you know, the old "no dickhead" policy. You know, mm-hmm. you got to be a good person to be a good All Black, and 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 that's that's still true to this day. Like, if if you don't have the work ethic, um, the the morality, the the ethics um, of being a good person. Um, you don't tend to stay around for very long. Um, you might make it on your rugby nouse and your rugby ability, but you tend to not last. Um, so, 
you know, there's there's not many second chances given. You know, if you if you sort of if you cock up in a big way, you sort of it, it's a big cross against your name for a while. Mm. Um, and you know, it depends on how you respond to that as to whether you get back in or not. But you know, definitely, we we don't change the environment for the people. The people have to have the right attributes to be able to live as an All Black because we're under the microscope. You know, you, you're everyone's watching. Um, you're role models. Um, you're on TV. You're walking through airports. Um, you know, you're going to schools and you're helping kids. You're you're doing lots of things in the public eye, and so um, yeah, but being a good person is pretty important. So that's, I mean, I suppose that's down to kind of the values of, uh, you know, people talk about, you know, what you do for the shirt type of thing. But, you know, as an organisation, it's about, the like you said, the culture changes when the people change. But there's got to be some kind of kind of baseline or totally. foundation blocks that yep. remain the same, isn't there? Absolutely. In order to be able to recruit those people in the first place. Yep. And, and so the good people factor yep. is, you know, I, I kind of liken that to, in a business sense, you can recruit just for skills and just for experience, but actually if you can get a good person who's going to fit right in and want to learn, want to grow, you can teach them those things. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. Harder, to, it's harder to kind of try and teach someone to be a good person, isn't it, and, and fit in with a team that doesn't disrupt the, the team, the dickhead thing. You know? yeah, absolutely. Like, it's, um, like skill set's one thing, isn't it? It's only one part yeah. of the puzzle. Yeah. You might have the best skill set, but, but not a good team player, not a good fit. Stroke, maybe struggle to be away on the road from your family. Like, there's lots of other things that become important as to rather than just your skills on the rugby, rugby park. Yeah. Um, you still need to do your core job, your core role, you know, to world world class standards. Yeah. So you still need to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, but you also need those other things. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So you're you're one of the leaders uh, within the the team, the organisation. What's your kind of approach to leadership you know how, how do you go about your role working with people yeah I don't I, don't, I mean I, I don't I'm not too sure how I lead um I think all I try to think about is is if I was in other people's shoes how would I like to be led I suppose so I just try to be really inclusive um I try to check in a lot with people I work with um you know, and and obviously at times pressure's high and fatigue's high, and you know probably my weak weak my weak point is that I get blunt and to the point um, because time is of the essence. Um, but that's just how it is. I don't think I can change that because sometimes time is important and we don't have time to fluff around. So um, yeah, I suppose I just try to be honest. Work hard, lead by example, um, challenge but support. You know, high challenge, high support, um, and and try to stay connected to everyone in, in our in our team. Um, you know, I think I think that that person that person piece that um, uh, informal conversations and just hanging out together is really really important. Um, it's really easy in our environment because when we're away from each other, like now, it's there's a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, a lot of a lot of texts. But when we're together, it was just walking down the corridor and banging on the door, and you can chat to people in your team twenty four seven. And it's the same for the players. Like um, 
the players are the same. It's all about honesty. It's all about trust. Um, you know, and 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 connections. Trying to trying to keep connections high so that those informal conversations can happen, mm. rather than having to sit down and have a proper hard meeting about it. Let's just chat about it on the side of the field. Mm. And um, so I suppose that's sort of that's sort of generally how I approach things. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned there the challenge and support, which you also mentioned with your manager Wintech. Yeah. Um, do you think you've learned from people like that? Oh, totally. And and I've got I've got lots of people that I've worked with that are that are very good leaders. You know, like um, whether it's players or or staff. You know, I thought you know I've learned lots from Graham Henry, Steve Hansen, Ian Foster, Wayne Smith, um, Gilbert Anoka, like people that have a lot of years under their belt, a lot of experiences, and have led a lot of great teams and. Um, so you sort of see how they do things, and 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 they all have um, hard edges to them, you know. Where if sometimes people just need need it straight up, you know, it's not good enough, and and some people need a little cuddle, and and you see, I see that in all of those all of those people I've worked with that where they've been able to challenge people and just be happy to challenge, and 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 but also at other times be really supportive. And I think that that's um, Gordon. Gordon sort of taught me that back in my early twenties, and and then those significant coaches and, and leaders have have shown the same. Mm. Um, you know, R- Richie's a classic. Richie was high challenge and and support yourself sort of guy. I reckon. Um, you know, he just he just raised the bar and just set high expectations, and and if you've got what it takes, you you rise to the occasion, and that's what he did, and and follow me. Um, you know, so there's been lots of people that have led in different ways that you sort of yeah. you learn from, and and I suppose role model for you. Yeah, I, look, I suppose what you're saying, um, Gilly, there is that it's situational leadership, really. We label it as that, right? Yeah, so it's it's what's needed at, at whatever time for whatever person. You know, it's what they need. Um, there's no one kind of style. Even even if you were leading me, I, I'd have <coughs> different needs on different days, right? Um, and you you mentioned a word there before about care. Um, I think it was in relation to Gordon. Actually, you mentioned that care. Um, and, I, and I read a, I read a book called uh, "Be Exceptional" by a guy called Joe Navarro, um, ex FBI profiler. And there's a nice phrase in there. It says, um, "Leadership is about caring, and to care we must be aware." So you know we need to understand people. And what you described, getting alongside people, having those informal chats, and just not. Formal meetings and formal discussions, but just getting alongside people, talking to people—that's how you get to know people, right? Well, and that's the same for like that's 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 for leadership, but it's for coaching, it's for teaching, it's it's all the same. It's um, you know, every situation and every person needs something different, and you're never going to always get it right. But um, but I think the fact that being aware of that's important. That awareness is really important of of what does this person need from me in this situation. And is it a cuddle or is it a kick up the butt um, or is it a combination deal, you know? So I think, um, yeah, everyone's different. And I think that's the, that's the fun. And I suppose coaching, teaching and leadership is um, there's lots of ways to skin a cat. Um, but, but having that appreciation, everyone's different in every situation requires something different, you know, pretty important. How, how has that changed over the years? I mean, you know, if you think about rugby players, you know, blokey kind of environment, um, 
you know, historically, uh, we talk about it these days, don't we, with mental health and well-being. We're not good at opening up and talking about things, but yet here we are, you're talking to, to us about um, whether people need to cuddle or not, right? <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of a, you know, analogy, but, and it might be the case, absolutely. But how has that changed over the years that you've been involved in, in, in rugby? Are you seeing a difference now in the way that we are more focused on personal personalization and needs of individuals as opposed to one size fits all for sure yeah um <laughs> just reflecting on myself a little bit like when i started i was i had no appreciation for that at all it was i know what i'm doing i've been studying for nine years here's your program go and do it don't ask questions just go and do it and i was and i sort of i sort of thought that at the time that's what was required from someone in my role was was a hard-nosed um, S&C coach that made people work super hard. It was all I thought I was meant to do. And I think that it's because the the guy before me at the Chiefs, that's sort of what he did. Um, and so I, I think I tried, I, th I think that was what I did for my first couple of years. And and we got big, fit, strong athletes Um but we got lots of injuries on reflection, probably more injuries than I would have ever liked. But at the time, I didn't know that it was high. Um, and maybe maybe gym athletes, but not rugby players. And so um, in my evolution, I suppose, um, in my learnings and my experiences, it's very much every person needs something different. So yes, there's a general need, but within that, everyone's different. And... So whether that's physical, technical, tactical, family, diet, whatever it is, everyone's got different needs. And, and that's, that's probably what I love the most is um, the challenge is really, really high to try and figure out how to get the most out of each person. And, um, and I think the, the biggest thing um, for me would be that um, if players know you care, then they will actually communicate way better with you about their needs. And then as soon as you've got that, then all of a sudden there's trust and you can come up with what's best for them. And, um, I mean, I, every player I've worked with I love to bits. You know, like to just – I don't think I can – I don't know if I could name five players that I haven't enjoyed working with at some on, on some level. Um, and so, yeah, that's I think that's really important is, is get to know someone, care – um, open up a, a, a relationship where there's trust and two-way dialogue versus one-way dialogue and um, and then you can figure out what's needed on an individual level and it's very complicated it's very difficult um, but it's that's the holy grail is to mm. to have all that sorted for every single person every single day um, and and generally you're happy enough if you're getting a pretty good plan for each individual for the week um, that's best for them you know, and going to produce a, a good outcome on Saturday. There's a lot in what you've just said there. I mean, for a start, you know, you were kind of following leadership that had gone before you and you just kind of in that mould, which I think happens to, to most people. You you become who you hang around with most type thing. Um, so if you've been led a certain way, you tend to lead that yeah. way yourself. So it takes, again, self-reflection and learning to, to modify that. Um, but what you've just said there as well around how complicated and how difficult it is to look at a team made up of individuals and deliver on their individual needs 
It is complicated. It's really hard, isn't it? And if you think about that in the sort of leadership context in business, there's a lot of leaders out there, if not most, would think that that's not their job or it's just too hard. But here we are, we've got one of the most successful organisations on the planet, the All Blacks. And what you're saying is that, oh, I think that's what you're saying, Nick, is that if you weren't doing that, you wouldn't be the, the successful absolutely organisation that you are. Yeah, no, I agree. And like, and that's only from my side of side of things. That's only my sort of my role with the, with the team. Um, you know, that that physical health um, side of performance, and and but it goes with our coaches. Our coaches are exactly the same. It's very. It's very much a, um, you're in the team because you're good at what you do. We care for you. We want you to be the best you can be. How can we help you and support you and challenge you um, to keep getting better? And um, and so they're, they're the same. And I think we saw that. I mean, I, I think we saw that and experienced that last year when our players played to save our coach in South Africa. It's probably the equal most emotional game I've been involved in in 16 years and and that showed how much the players cared for our staff in my opinion um it was the we care for them and that was them showing us how much they care for us so yeah very special yeah. very special yeah that's that's quite key I mean I'm just thinking they're relating that to some organizations that I'm aware of I've had some involvement with over the years where when times were hard or things weren't going quite so well and you needed everyone to be on board and trying to work out things whether they were there for you or not the employees the, the rest of the organization was up to how much genuine care you'd showed them i was just going to say absolutely you know, and if you're not genuinely caring for them because i and i'm being quite specific about genuine there it's got to come across genuine doesn't it for that trust to be there if there's genuine care, then it works both ways. If if not, then it doesn't. Yeah, well, it, it, it fascinates me because um, genuine being key word there. That when when the pressure comes on, how genuine you have been comes out, mm. and mm. and all too often, um, and I and again, I, I'll, I'll think back to my own experiences. Is that care isn't about words on a wall. You know, or words in a document or an email. It's actually the genuine stuff. It's the, it's the, it's just the note to say how appreciated you are. It's just the, the hundred dollar bottle of wine that gets delivered just to say, hey, you're awesome. Um, doesn't have to be big. It just has to be almost unexpected mm -hmm. and and genuine, coming from the right place in different situations. Mm -hmm. And and I think that. Um, you know, like I, I watch, I watch people and that I've worked with that show genuine care, and it's the, it's the informal cup of tea. It's the just one of the coaches pulling the player aside, just having a cup of tea over in the corner, just catching up. How are you going? How's home? Mm. You know, genuine, genuine catch up, not a, not a walking off the bus, mm. one of those informal ones I was telling you about, but, but actually that genuine sit down and and, and how is everything going? Yeah. You okay? Yeah. Um, and I think that's 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 massively important because, as you say, in an organisation, people will give back what they feel like they've been given, you know. And when pressure's on and things are tough, um, which is what we experience in a, in a test match, um, your character shines through, mm. and and the care that the the athletes have felt will be paid back in spades. Yeah, yeah, 
again, there's so much in there I want to go through. <laughs> I, there's one thing I just want to say there and relate that to the work, to a work context where I've had, I've had it said to me numerous times where leaders espouse one thing, but when the pressure's on, that's what you just reminded me of there, when the pressure's on, they revert back to actually what their genuine stance is. So we say one thing's important, but actually when shit happens, you see the truth. And people see through that. It's your actions that speak louder than the words. Like I say, the words on the wall, it's that kind of stuff. So how? that's a nice segue into a question I had around um, maybe some insight into how the All Blacks kind of, as a team, I'm conscious that you work with other organisations and other teams as well, um, Nick. Um, we could spend all day all day talking about this, like you say, but you've got to go out for dinner. Um, you know, but how do the All Blacks kind of train for that? You know, because what they're renowned for, amongst other things, is... Um, working well under pressure, you know, it's 79 minutes and they're behind. They don't, they seem to have this kind of equanimity, be able to stay calm and composed under pressure and then pull it out of the bag. How do you, how do you train for that? Is that something you're involved in as well? That's what I want to oh, I think, um, I think, I think the whole, you know, the, the performance under pressure piece is, um, is something that, is talked about often and it's again it's another holy grail that everyone's trying to chase because a lot of performance whether that's um in the business world or in sport a lot of people can perform well when there's no pressure and then all of a sudden there's pressure and time restrictions and 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 thing people can either try a bit hard or crumble and um and so i think that a lot of that isn't about how you prepare in the week, but actually about the athletes that you've got and their experiences that they've been through themselves. Um, and then ha- what learning we've taken from some of those experiences. Um, the fact that the All Blacks have won lots of games in the last minutes um, probably creates a, a belief in our group that don't worry if at 75 we're behind, we can still win because we've done it so many times. So there's this belief that that we will we will perform right up until the final whistle because we've always done that. So that, that's part of the legacy of the team, I think. Um, and so um, I suppose creating the team, investing time into creating a team where people trust one another because that's what happens under pressure is people try to do it themselves um, because they might not trust someone else to do it, whereas in the All Blacks, there's a lot of trust in, in players on your left and right shoulder, so you don't have to try so hard to do it by yourself. You've just got to trust the team and trust the process. Um, and if everyone does their job, we'll be okay. Um, so that's talked about a lot. You know, it's talked about a lot. Do your job and know that your mate on your left and on your right, they'll do their, do, do their job. And so, you know, in, in lower levels of performance or in other in lower level teams, good people or good athletes or good workers might have to do more than their job because people either side of them aren't quite as good but in the All Blacks everyone's really good Mm. and so you can just focus on if you do your job right that's all you have to do do what you are responsible for Mm. and I think that's what builds 80 minute performances is is trust and you just nailing your your role Mm. um and and I think you know there's lots of other reasons why we win games in the last couple of minutes, but but I think that's that's probably one of the big um, guiding principles is just do your own job mm. and trust the others to do theirs. Mm. 
So one of those other reasons they do so well is probably down to your role, to be fair, strength and condition. Um, can you talk to us a bit more about that, about what, what that looks like? You know, what's, what is your role? How, you know, sort of do your job. What is your job within the context of the yeah, um, I, Again, I, like I sort of stick to my knitting. Like I, um, my role has evolved. It's changed over the years as I've been been there for longer and longer. But um, I suppose my, my role at the moment is I lead the health and performance team, which is doctor, physio, manual therapist, nutritionist, sports scientist. Excuse me. Um, so I lead that group. And our role is to have the the athletes physically ready to rock and roll come kickoff, and so that means preventing injuries. That means training hard and smart to get fitter, faster, stronger, more powerful. Um, that means recovering well from hard sessions. That means I work with the head coach and the manager around our schedule, what day we're training, morning, afternoon. Um, if we're travelling to Argentina. When are we going to go? When we get there, what are we going to do? So I sort of help help put the schedule together, um, work with the coaches on the content on the field, what we're going to do, how long for, how hard are we going to do it for, um, and and then obviously working with individuals on their own plan within the week. Um, so yeah, really, I, I suppose I'm a I'm a um, I'm a strength and conditioning coach that has involvement across the whole group um so you know me and the the physio and i work really closely together um i'm very hands-on a lot of people in my sort of role would be more of a more of a manager leader versus being hands-on but i write all the programs still i do all that myself and part of that's because um i used to think it was because i was a control freak but it's actually i really enjoy it it's i love knowing exactly what every single player is doing and why. Um, I've written the program, I've written the plan, I'm the one coaching them. So if anyone asks, any of the coaches ask me about a particular player, I've got my finger on the pulse for all of them um, because I'm doing most of the work with them. Um, so, um, yeah, I love the hands-on and I won't step away from that unless they drag me away kicking and screaming. Yeah, I suppose if you're if you're – working in conjunction with the head coach, you need to know, in, in order to be able to give advice uh, you know, in the direction of the head coach, you need to know, have your finger on the button, don't you, and know totally. everything there is to know, yep. which means, you know, like we were talking about before, you need to be hands-on, but you need to be close to and understanding how people are performing to plan, you know, yep. what, what's going well, what needs improvement. I yep. mean, I suppose as well down to monitoring players during games. Yeah, with no, the we, technology that we have these days. Oh, totally. We get we have so much information on them. It's um, yeah, you know, I, I get information now. Like I'm, at, I'll be at home this weekend watching the rugby and and um, you know, we get we get GPS information on them the next day. So you know, living here in Tauranga, I still got information on all the players that play on the weekend on my on my computer. You know, who's worked hard, who hasn't, mm. um, who's injured, who's not, who's what's everyone's body composition looking looking like at the moment. What do the gym programs look like? So we've got all that information at our fingertips at the moment. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So there's no reason not to, not to have very detailed individual plans when we know everything about the individual. Mm. You know, and so lots of information, and then we've got to try and filter out the the, the through all that data what it actually means for us going forward. You know, yeah. create some go forward. Yeah. So I mean, in relation to the, the, the players, the 
they're the assets of the organization, I suppose, and then you've got to yep. look after them. Yep. Um, it's about, you know, like you said, your role is, is keeping them in top shape uh, so that they can perform at their best when, when needed. How, how difficult is it to make a call that maybe someone's not quite fit or we shouldn't risk them? I mean, I think it's different when you come, when we talk about head injuries and things like that. It's kind of probably, I think, maybe taking out your yeah. hands anyway because of independent assessments and things. But you know, if someone's got a niggle or a strain or they're not quite, maybe their head's not in the right space, um, you know, how difficult it is when, when you, if you know, what these players can give during a match to make the call to not put them on? Yeah, it's, um, it's not that difficult because we have, if we've got all the facts, um, then there's a, a a conversation had between the the head coach and the doctor generally, um, or the head coach and and my team, the the physio, myself, and the doctor around where someone's at, and um, it's either a blanket he's unavailable, or he's got this issue. It should be okay, but it might not be. So there's risk. Oh, do we want to take the risk or are you happy to make a selection change? Mm-hmm. You know, and so we we try to stay out of the selection piece. It's important that we are removed from the selection piece, the health and performance team. We're very much a, here's the facts, here's the information, um, and this is our, our, our thoughts, this is our recommendation, and then the coach can make the final decision. Mm-hmm. And um, and generally, like all the coaches I've been involved with, if, if, the, if a player's at 70 80%, and we've got someone who who's at a hundred percent. They'll they'll pick the fit person, the person that's fine, knowing that therefore the risk will be lower. And next week, that other player will be good to go. You know, so so the element of of selection required, and and there's balance of the squad. There's risk risk reward. What does that player bring at eighty percent from a leadership perspective, mm-hmm. even though physically they might not be up to scratch? Um, so yeah, I think for, as a medical group. We have to present the facts with a recommendation and then the coach will make a, the final decision. Um, and generally they are on the money. They, they, it's all about performance. We need to have the best players out there, the fittest, healthiest group. Yeah, I suppose maybe I'm making an assumption here with the professionalism of the sport over the last few decades that you're picking from a squad of they're, they're all excellent players. It's not like uh, That's right. back in my day when I was playing that you, know, you were on the bench because you were... <coughs> nowhere near as good as the people who pick first. Um, <laughs> it's not like that, is it? So not the, it's not like that in the. It's All not Blacks. as much of a risk. No, it's not like that in the All Blacks. It's like that in other teams where yeah. where where players might get rolled out because the next the next player isn't anywhere near as good as you, and you might get rolled out again and again and again, even though you've got a couple of niggles that aren't yeah. dangerous. Like, let's be clear, they're not. They're just niggles where you're not functioning as well as you could. But that's rugby. Rugby it's a contact sport, so people have always got something sore. It's whether it's a broken finger or a, mm. or, a, or a tight muscle or a, or a bruised quad. I mean, everyone's carrying something at some point in time, and and I think that at, at the All Black level, at least, um, you know, often you have got some really good depth, yeah. and so you're not forced to put players out that shouldn't be out. There. Sure. Can I ask you a question about going back to the culture piece? So just something that came to mind there about. You know, having that trust within the organisation, within the team. Um, you know, Simon Sinek uh, talks about the circle of safety, so that we're all kind of looking after each other, got each other's backs, so we can focus on the the external forces, the opposition. Um, 
But being an all black is, uh, you know, it's a highly competitive space. And as you've kind of alluded to there that, you know, you, you might be in for a while, but that's not, there's no guarantees about how long you're going to be in there for. Yep. So is, is that a, a, a constant kind of concern for players or is it basically you're in and you're just, you're absorbed by the, comp, uh, the, the culture? You know, because I, 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 the reason I'm asking is, in my mind, naively maybe, I could see like the, the competition might interfere with the trust. Within the squad, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, completely the opposite. It's um, uh, everything is about the team, right? And so uh, something that blows my mind still you know, when I watch the All Blacks train um, is that often we've got players in the same position. Mm. They're trying to be the number one in their position. Mm. Um, so let's talk about halfback, three halfbacks. We always have three halfbacks. Um, and and at any opportunity they have, the three halfbacks will be helping each other get better mm. because team comes first. Mm. And so they behave in a way, and it, it's really organic as well, um, because young players experience it. When they become experienced players, they model the behaviours that they were showing. Um so the three halfbacks will, any opportunity they get, they will help each other become better. So what that looks like is after training, the three of them will get together and they'll help each other improve their pass. And it sort of defies logic a little bit, like why would I help you if I want to take your spot? But how they behave is that actually it doesn't matter who's out there as long as we win. So I'm going to help you be better than you are now so that the team wins. And so... Um, it's it's actually it's it's a beautiful thing to watch in my in my eyes um, where the competition for the spot it's always there but it's but but it's out but it's exhibited out on the park when they're playing they're trying to do better than their teammate or than the guy that they're competing with um, but until like outside of the game they're trying to help each other grow and be better um, whether it's physical technical tactical. Um, you know, it's yeah, it's pretty special. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd see that in many industries. No, I'm just trying to kind of relate that back to you know business and workplace. Yeah, it's quite rare, isn't it? I suppose. That's, oh, absolutely. That's no, like often in, in businesses, people are competing mm-hmm. and and not thinking about the overall outcome for the company. Yeah. They're thinking about themselves and their climb up the ladder and their earning potential. You know, sure. um, and and I think that. You know, maybe partners in a firm might work really well together to try and mm. in the best interest of the firm. But um, you know, it's it's pretty special to see you know, mm. yeah. grown men helping each other be better, even though they want that they're competing for the same spot. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm conscious of the time, um, but I do want to ask. You've talked about you know caring and your your approach to leadership and your role is really about understanding people extremely well, so you've got to be close to them. Um, it's naturally an organisation where there's comings and goings. And <coughs> I, I, I imagine that you know, you've got a group of guys there at one point in time and then someone doesn't get selected, they don't turn up. How does, how does that for you in your role when you've got these close relationships with people and then they're not there? What's, you know, how does, how's that? It's, um, it's, probably the, it's probably the hardest thing of the team really. Like... Um, um, there's not many players you get to say goodbye to. 
So not many players finish off off their own back. Um, like most World Cups, we know who's leaving. Um, some years we know who's leaving, um, but a lot of players just don't get reselected. So then they leave. So there's never a goodbye for lots of them. So it's pretty tough, like tough on them, um, tough on us, um, you know, but it, it, what, what, what does happen though is it's like all of a sudden that person's no longer there, but now we've got this new exciting new, new person and sort of all of a sudden you've got a new five or six people come in. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a sad part of the team, you know, because often teams, the same team may never be selected again after one game like that team may never play again together ever um so yeah it's it's interesting um world cups you know like this world cup i think we've got six or seven guys that'll be their last game in the all black jersey and so you know they, those become quite emotional times because typically those those players have been around for seven eight nine ten twelve years um so yeah that, that that's why you know, I think 2015 World Cup was pretty special because we won the thing, but we won the thing and it was about eight of their last game. And they won top of the world and they left, finished. Um, pretty cool. Yeah. Mm. Hopefully we can do the same this year. I was going to ask you for a prediction. So that's your prediction. Obviously, I mean, you're not going to say It's not my prediction. Else, it's my hope. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's our desire. It's obviously something we all would love to do would be to send some of our legends off in style and – and um, yeah, finish a pretty tough four year cycle. You know, it's been a pretty, been a pretty crazy three years with COVID and being locked out of New Zealand for for four months. And yeah, like it's been pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. There's so much more I would like to ask you, um, Gilly. Uh, this uh, you've given us so much. I'm grateful for that. But I, I, there's so much more I could have delve into if, if we'd have had all day to do it. <laughs> Right. So I'll, I'll just finish off with, um, you know, we've talked about and touched on your person about, you know, what ne- what's next. Um, you mentioned as well that you're kind of only halfway through your career, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, which is good, good, good outlook to have. And you, and like you said, you know, you started uh, with the All Blacks very young. You were as young as the players. Um, so you have got a long way ahead of you. What, what is on the horizon for you? I mean, obviously you've got the World Cup coming up. But is there anything else in any other direction that you're you're looking to? Are you happy where you are and just pushing on with that, or you know, are there other things that you'd like to do? And, and unfortunately, we've not been able to touch on some of the other things that you 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 do. Um, but yeah, is there is there anything in particular that you're focused on for the future? Um, not really. Like I, I mean, it's probably two two things. Um, first thing is yes, focused on World Cup this year. Um, we kick off in a month and. Um, so I can't wait. Um, massive challenge. It's going to be awesome. Um, then after that, uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be carrying on. Um, so you know that's going to be another challenge with another group of people. Um, you know, and and then after that, who knows? Um, I'm still loving what I do, and I keep keep asking myself, and am I still loving it? And, and am I still doing a good job? And and the answer to that. To both those questions, I think at the moment is definitely yep. Um, you know, I'm still loving it. Still can't wait to get back into it. Um, and you know, feedback I've had is positive. So that you know, as long as as long as those two boxes are ticked, then I'll keep doing it. Um, and 
yeah, I just love teaching and coaching and, and I suppose um, learning. So I'll just keep doing those three things and and hopefully other opportunities pop up along the way. And we did think about going overseas for a little bit, my wife and I, because the, the kids are left home. But, um, yeah, that's that's not in the immediate future, that's for sure. Well, whatever you do, I wish you all the best and uh, all the best for later this year. Um, thank you again for giving up time to come and talk to us today. I really appreciate it. It's been, I've really enjoyed it. That time's flown by. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I, I said, I could, have, I could have, Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. how I feel. I've got so much more to ask you. If you come back and do it again. Yeah, no problem. No problem. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. As you'll hopefully hear by now, if you've seen other episodes, this segment of the podcast is all about wisdom worth sharing from our guests who've been living a life that's a story worth retelling. At the end of every interview, I look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation and summarize them here. Okay, so where should I start with the wisdom worth sharing from Nick or Gilly? There was almost too much wisdom to share in this, what's supposed to be a short section at the end of the podcast. So I'll try and pick out some key bits that piqued my interest. But if you haven't already seen the full episode, I recommend that you do so. Gilly said, I'm not intelligent, I just work hard. Clearly, he is intelligent, as was evident with some of the wisdom that he shared with us. But there's no doubt he also really worked hard as well. He would start early and finish late, always willing to put in the extra hours and go the extra mile. At the university, he did what it took to be ahead of the competition, to stand out above the crowd of 300 other students, all trying to get a shot at the few jobs there were back in those days when the sport wasn't professional. As a teacher at Wintech, he would work hard to win the favour of his manager, who he looked up to and admired because of his leadership approach. By doing so, he was able to negotiate shifting his hours from teaching to coaching as the need for that increased. Someone who turned up and did the minimum wouldn't have been given the same level of opportunity, I'm sure. In sport, it was the same for Gilly. He volunteered to work with the Waikato rugby um, team because he wanted to learn. And as a result of that willingness to do the things for the right reason, two years later, he found himself leading the strength and conditioning for the Chiefs rugby franchise. Gilly said that when you love something, you become good at it. And that makes sense. Because when you're passionate about something, you're more inclined to spend more time on it. You become better as a consequence, which then leads to more opportunities. And the cycle continues. You become better, you enjoy it more, and so on and so forth. It's a positive spiral in the right direction. So, it really is important for us all to find something that we enjoy doing, because surely the opposite is also true. If we don't enjoy something, we won't put the same amount of effort in, and so we're not likely to become as good as we could be. And that becomes a negative spiral, potentially in the wrong direction. This is true for all aspects of life, and none more so, in my view, than work. If we're not enjoying work, what can and should we do about it? Talking of work, and more specifically leadership, I enjoyed what Gilly had to say in this area. Clearly he's a good leader and of course 
His approach is effective, as can be seen by the performance in general of the All Blacks since he's been involved for the last 16 years or so. So personally, I think that we can't go far wrong in looking to Gilly and the All Blacks as an organisation if we want to know what good leadership looks like. Gilly himself stated that since being with the All Blacks, he had changed his views on the approach needed over the years. He set it out following in the footsteps of his predecessor, which is a natural thing for anyone to do. We're creatures of our environment, of course. But unfortunately, it's not always the best thing to happen. Gilly is a self-reflective person, and he was able to establish that what he was doing with the players was contributing to the injury rate. He said that he had players who were good for the gym, but not necessarily for the playing field. This alone, I think, gives us an indication as to the kind of leader that Gilly is. It's not easy for leaders to reflect and admit that they've got it wrong, which is why it rarely, rarely happens. And why I believe we have poor workplace cultures across the globe. Being open to learning, but also admitting that you were wrong, or just that you could be better, isn't just for the players and employees. It should be led by the leaders of any organisation. As Patrick Lencioni talks about in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, it requires leaders to engage in vulnerability-based trust to create the foundation for a great team to exist. That means admitting our fears, failures and mistakes. Gilly learned a lot about leadership from his manager at Wintech and summed him up by saying he just cared. His manager was challenging and supportive and this was something that Gilly talked about at the All Blacks. High challenge, high support. Good leaders are willing to do both, not just one or the other. I've talked with leaders recently who care for the people they work with but they're less inclined or willing to challenge, or they could be just less confident in doing so. The reality is that both challenging and supporting are showing that you care. If we are not challenging people to meet the standard or expectations, or as the case may be to stretch to new standards, we're not doing them any favours. Gilly said that the biggest thing is if players know you care, they communicate way better with you about their needs. And all of a sudden, there's trust, and you can come up with what's best for them. He would say to the players, you're in the team because you're good at what you do. We care for you. How can we challenge and support you to keep getting better? The consequence of this is significant. The players then respond in the same way. Gilly said that he saw that last year when the players played to save their coach. They showed how much they cared in return. I've witnessed this in organisations I've worked with over the years, but primarily I've seen the opposite. When employees don't feel the trust, they're less willing to step up when the organisation needs a concerted effort. And it's important that the care shown is authentic. We've probably all had experiences of leaders espousing one thing, but when the pressure comes on, how genuine they are comes out. It's not about having words on a wall, as Gilly put it. It's about showing that you care consistently. I think another important point that came out of the discussion was the no dickhead policy in the All Blacks environment. It's not about caring so much about individuals that you upset the rest of the team. It's the opposite of that. If individuals aren't team players, they don't fit in, they don't belong, and as Gilly said, they don't last. The same should apply for workplaces. 
I see this often where managing leaders are either nervous about taking the action needed themselves and hope it will just sort itself out. I've been there myself, to be honest. Or they know that something needs to be done, but their organization is risk averse. It's about balance, like everything. But we need to do the right thing for the organization, for the majority. When we do this and prove with our actions that we care about the team, we can get amazing cultures that thrive. Gilly said that it blows his mind that often players who are in the same position, trying to be the number one option for that shirt, any opportunity they have, they're helping one another get better. He says it defies logic a bit. Why would I help you if I want your spot? But their attitude is, it doesn't matter as long as we win. Now the question for those of us who don't work in high-performing sports teams is how could this be translated to work? It's the culture and the leadership approach within the All Blacks that creates that kind of environment, that kind of attitude. So what do our, need, our leaders need to do in our workplaces to try and replicate some of this? Simon Sinek refers to the circle of trust where we don't need to focus on protecting ourselves from each other so we can focus on doing what's best for the organization. It's a significant challenge, but if we work towards that, who knows what we could achieve. Hopefully, you've been able to take many insights away from this interview that you can apply to some aspect of your life, work, and legacy. Use it, share it with others. As Gilly said, the other side of learning is teaching. And as I say, teaching helps us retain what we've learned and commit to change, which is necessary if we do enhance our life's work. I hope that you're happy, safe, and successful in all that you do. And remember, live a life that's a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.